Well, good morning again, and welcome once those of you who are joining us online. I'm so glad that you could be here. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Pastor Graham. I'm the teaching pastor here at Elam Chapel, and we've been in a series which we have called The Meaning of Life, and uh, we're going to continue that today. But before we do, let's, let's open with a word of prayer, and then we'll get into God's Word for today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your goodness and your love. Lord, none of us could stand before you if not for your goodness. Lord, we pray that you would shape us into the people that you would have us to be, that you would use these words today to reach into our minds and in our hearts and to pull us into the direction that you would have us go. Remind us of that which is true, that which is important, that which matters to you, how we can find meaning in life and live rightly. In your name we pray. Amen. <coughs> immediately coughs into the microphone. We've been talking about the meaning of life, and we've been attempting to follow something of the outline of a human life as we have done so. We start in childhood, where the big and important things in our lives are based on happens. That we, we talked about God, we talked about worship and gratitude and how central that is to everything that we do. Then we got into teenage, or late teenage really, and we talked about the world of work and finding purpose there. And today, we are in the stage that let's call early adulthood. Once things are somewhat secure in life, once you've established a base of stability, people tend to start looking for more. We start thinking about marriage and family and having children. And this is an important part of life. Decisions that you make in this stage are going to affect everything else that comes after, particularly children, right? Marriage is something that can change later. I'm sure we all know people who got married late and others whose marriages ended sooner than they had once hoped. But children, generally speaking, are there for the long haul. So when we talk about meaning and purpose in our lives, the question of family is an important one because of how many other things it affects, as well as being important just on its own virtues. And it's so interesting to me how much weight the Bible puts on family, especially as a judge of character. Paul gives us several lists of qualifications for a position that is variously translated as elder or overseer, but in truth is seemingly more descriptive of a pastor. And these lists are found in the pastoral epistles, perhaps appropriately, which were written to Timothy and to Titus, as Paul gives instructions and advice on finding trustworthy people for the leadership of the church. One of the main factors that we see come up again and again in these lists is looking at the candidate's family. And now, in this context, the candidates were exclusively men, so it asked things like, what's his relationship like with his wife? What's his relationship like with his children? And apparently, you can tell a lot about a person from what their home life is like. You can read those lists in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, if you'd like. But Paul also makes this comment, which I find very interesting, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 
Now, there's a whole context going on there. But clearly, family and care for family is something that the Bible values. But not only is it valuable, it is purposeful. Remember that we've been saying value is found in that which lasts. And one of the things that lasts is people. Not only in the sense that by having children and investing in the next generation that we're creating something that is going to outlive us, but also just in the sense that people are going to live forever, whether with God or without God, and the impact that we make on their lives will continue to have an effect throughout that time. Now, I do want to say and acknowledge that marriage is not for everyone. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says that it's better if we don't get married. Specifically, he means that, um, he means that you can devote yourself more fully to the work of God if you're not married. Speaking as a pastor who is married and who has children, Paul is 100% correct. Not that people shouldn't get married, but that doing this, focusing on church, being mission-focused, is way easier if you don't have these other important things demanding your attention. But it's also important to note that Paul in no way whatsoever condemns marriage. Apparently, all the other apostles were married. Paul was the only one who didn't, right? And it's funny, in most Christian circles, what tends to happen is that unmarried people are viewed as second-class citizens in some way, as if their singleness were a problem to be solved, that these are people who are waiting to be completed. I'm sure we could speak at length about why that view isn't good, kind, or true, But at the same time, some Christians who misinterpret the Bible want to use this passage to say that married people, married people, are the second-class citizens. And that if they were really serious about their faith, they would have stayed single and focused up. Neither is right, though. Right? We're called to grace and unity. Some are called to marriage, and some are called to singleness. Moving on, though, from there, if we can acknowledge that marriage is not for everyone, then it follows that children are not for everyone. Because according to the Bible, that thing that grown-ups do that makes children, that's only for married couples. But that doesn't mean that single people are totally excused from the family dynamics of the Christian community. And in fact, in some ways, it means that they needed more. Just because single people don't have biological biological children, or married couples who choose not to or can't have children for that matter, it doesn't mean that they don't have children at all. And I'm not even talking about adoption. In 1 Timothy 1, verse 2, Paul refers to Timothy as his true son in the faith. Titus also receives this treatment in Titus 1, verse 4. Paul also refers to Onesimus this way. Do you remember Onesimus? He's the escaped slave that is the topic of Paul's brilliant letter to Philemon. Paul refers to Onesimus as his son. Now, none of these three men were Paul's actual children. Paul wasn't even married, as we've said. But Paul's relationship to them was like the relationship between a parent and a child because they were so close, because of the respect that they shared, because of the care that they displayed for one another. 
Everyone can do that. We can all have those kinds of relationships where we become spiritual parents and children to one another. In fact, this is something that Paul wishes to see more of in the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul laments the fact that their church has many teachers but few fathers. His care for the church is like a father for his children, a beautiful metaphor if you ask me. And he encourages more in the church to take this attitude that we together are the family of God. Now, we'll loop back to that idea, but for now, I want to push us beyond the limits of our families and relationships to give us purpose and look at our friendships. For many people, friends are even more important than family, especially for the young, right? There was absolutely a time when I thought that my friends were more important than my family. Now, I want to be clear, I think that's a wrong attitude to have, but it's understandable, and it's also something that most people grow out of. Unless you have a family that has rejected you or abused you, and you know, that's different, then frankly, you're probably right. But friends are incredibly valuable. And as much as I love family and the idea of family, I'm also fond of the idea of found family. That the closest relationships don't have to be blood relations, and that those close friendships still matter. And the Bible, too, has lots to say on the topic of friendship. I love the verses in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 to 10. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. I don't know about you. To me, that sounds a lot like the cultural proverb that we hear sort of floated around. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Have you heard that one? I feel like this Ecclesiastes passage, I mean, this one probably came first, let's be clear, right? But I feel like, they, I feel like they, they echo a similar truth, which is great. And the Bible is full of stories of beautiful friendship. David and Jonathan springs to mind. And we've already talked about the close friendship between Paul and some of his companions, a relationship so close that he ends up referring to them as his children. And of course, the most wonderful friendship is the friendship that we have received with God. Jesus speaks of this in John chapter 15, starting in verse 12. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. I love that. Friendship with God. Friendship with God is absolutely the most valuable and meaningful thing to be found in life. And the way that we grow and express our friendship with God is essentially the same way that we grow and express our friendships with one another. Time spent together, acts of service and devotion, living our lives consciously of the other person. Look, loving God clearly is the most important thing. And Jesus says as much. In Matthew 22, starting in verse 36, we read a question which is posed to Jesus. Teacher, who is the greatest or which is the greatest command in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor 
as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In fact, many have argued that the primary way in which we love God is by loving our neighbor. Now, I think that that particular idea has been abused somewhat, and it's been turned into an excuse to permit all kinds of sinful behavior all in the name of love. But there is an element of truth there, right? And of course, the next question to ask is, who's my neighbor? And in fact, that is the question that the questioner asked next in Luke's version of this same story. Do you remember how Jesus answered? Who's my neighbor? Does anyone remember? With the parable of the Good Samaritan. He tells this story of this man who was beaten by the side of the road, and that a man in the lowest social rungs of the society came and rescued him when the wealthy and the good seemingly turned away. And Jesus' question at the end, who was a neighbor to this man? I think there's a strong case to be made that Jesus' answer was essentially, everyone is your neighbor. Whoever happens to be nearby at the moment, love them as you love yourself. So, how do we do that? I'm reminded again of Jesus' command in John 15, which we read earlier as part of the larger passage, but I'd like to pull this out for now. John 15, just start, just verse 12. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Laying down your life is a great way to put it. Romans chapter 12 puts it this way. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Now, Romans is talking much more about the context of loving God, right, than, than in the context of loving people. But I think the principle still applies. I think that there's a lot of wisdom in the saying that it is much more difficult to live for something than it is to die for something. To die for something or for someone takes only a few moments of courage, not that dying for someone or for a cause isn't incredibly, incredibly meaningful. I mean, we're wearing these, aren't we? That is a huge deal, and I don't mean to downplay that at all. But to live for something or someone is an all-day, every-day, for-the-rest-of-your-life commitment. That's hard. <laughs> I'm sure I don't live out my commitment to God all the time. I fail, don't you? I'm married, do you really think that I managed to successfully live out my commitment to my wife all day, every day? And if you want to argue with me about that, I will sign up for your marriage seminar. <laughs> Living in relationship is hard. Living in commitment is hard. But it's worth it. It's incredibly meaningful and rewarding, whether, we talk, whether we're talking about God or people, so I want to give you three things that you can do to help yourself to live in relationship with God and with people. Now, before we talk about our one, two, three things, there is a zeroth thing. If anyone's in computer programming, they'll really appreciate that I start the list with zero. The zeroth thing, the, the initial thing that we need to have in place is that you need to be in relationship with God. If you haven't asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, that's got to be your starting point. 
And if that's you, we'd love to talk with you after the service. We can pray together, we can talk about what it means, and we can get started on that journey. We'll have volunteers down here at the front. I'll be there. We'd love to talk with you. Okay, so now that the zeroth thing is taken care of, here's three ways that you can foster relationship with God and with people. One, spending time together. With people, that means talking to each other, texting, calling, whatever, FaceTiming, however it is that you communicate. It also means doing stuff together. Generally, I find guys like that approach a lot better. But, you know, whatever, to each their own. Shared interest and activity is great for building relationship. And those same principles apply to building your relationship with God. Yes, it's not like people in that you can pick up the phone and have a back-and-forth conversation. But when you do spend time in prayer... When you do spend time in worship and reading your Bible, you can learn to hear God's voice. And it can be a lot like a conversation. Okay, second thing, acts of service and devotion. Psychologically, there is this really interesting thing that happens when you buy something for another person. Not only do they, not only do they like you more because, hey, you just bought their burger or their stuffy or whatever, Right? But your own brain plays a trick on you and says, you must really like this person. Look, you just bought them something. Isn't that interesting? Because it's not just buying something, is it? Right? It's a sacrifice. That money could have been spent on something else. In fact, you've probably got some great ideas for what else you would have spent that money on on yourself. But you chose to spend it on them. And the same thing applies to time. When you give someone your time, whether it's showing up to support their new, new shop or endeavor or helping them move or just listening to them when they're going through a hard time, you are sacrificing for them. And that builds the relationship. Well done. Now, the same principle applies to our relationship with God. When you give to God from your time and your money and your energy, you are building that relationship you are becoming more invested in it, might be a good way to put that. And what I love especially about the relationship with God is there's no worry about the back play. Right? Sometimes you'll buy something for a human and you'll go, do, do they feel the same way about me? Do they still like me? Especially as parents. But with God, God is always right there, ready to give you more of him. And the third thing that you can do to build relationships with God and with people is to live consciously. And this is a little bit more complicated of an idea. Just live your life remembering that they exist. Think about them when they're not around. Think about them when you're planning or when you're acting. Check in. This can be as serious as calling up someone who you know is mourning or as simple as Checking with your spouse if you've already got plans on a weekend before you book something with the boys. When you live your life conscious of this other person, you are honoring them. That is what it means to be in relationship with someone. Now, different kinds of relationship have different kinds of effect. I don't check in with my boys before I book a date night with my wife. Right? That's not the priority order. But God, too, is a person and we live in relationship with him. 
We think about God and how our actions affect our relationship with him. We seek to honor him in our lives. And it's a lot easier to only think of ourselves, to act in ways that are easy and convenient for us, but instead, we can choose to make that sacrifice. And that, too, builds the relationship. This sacrificial mindset, this putting others first and God first and giving ourselves toward that is exactly, I think, what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 16, verse 25, where Jesus says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Meaning and purpose and fulfillment is found when we give ourselves to our relationships with God and with people. Through love and service, we create something that lasts. Because we are all in relationship, and we are together the family of God. To finish today, I'd like to read you a longer portion of Scripture, and I want you to think about it in terms of how it speaks to how we are to live together as the family of God. In Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1, Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of its image, in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Lord God, we want to live your way. God, we want to love your way. We want to care for the people around us, both the people in our families and the people who you've just put in our orbits, God. None of them are there by accident. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be your hands and feet to a hurting world, to hurting people in our lives, our friends, our families, our acquaintances, God. 
Let us be a light in this world. Help us to find our meaning and our purpose as we live for you. In your name we pray. Amen.